0: Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor Susanna Siegel. Dr. Siegel is the Edgar Pierce Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. She is a hugely influential figure in the world of contemporary philosophy and has made significant contributions to many different areas of philosophy. Professor Siegel is especially well known for the work that she's done in the philosophy of perception. For instance, she's written about what kinds of things we can perceive how our perceptions can be influenced by cognition and emotion, the relationship between perception and culture, memory, and knowledge, and many other topics as well. In this episode, I speak with Professor Siegel about work that she's currently doing in political philosophy. A lot of what we discuss here is based upon two op-eds that Professor Siegel has recently written for the Tampa Bay Times. The first op-ed concerns the emotion known as schadenfreude, and what role this emotion is currently playing in contemporary politics. The emotion of schadenfreude is loosely speaking, the experience of pleasure that one can get from observing the suffering or misfortune of another. I asked Professor Siegel questions about schadenfreude, what moral significance it has, and how it can function to deepen political polarization. Then in the second part of the discussion, as questions about Professor Siegel's second op-ed which concerns the relationship between scientific expertise and authoritarian politics. We discuss many different things here, including how science poses a threat to authoritarianism, the reliance on scientific expertise during the coronavirus pandemic, and what Professor Siegel calls the paradox of Trump. I will post a link to the op-eds that we discuss in the show notes and a link to some of the other philosophy articles that get referenced in the conversation. I really appreciate Professor Siegel taking the time to speak with me and getting her insight on politics in such a consequential political moment. So buckle your seatbelts, for I give you Professor Susanna Siegel.
1: Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. A storm coming, Mr. Wayne.
0: All right, so the first question that I have before we get into the relation to politics is what is schadenfreude?
1: Okay, schadenfreude is an emotion uh, where you are taking pleasure in beholding the pain or brought about by some misfortune of somebody else. Um, So it's related to cruelty, except where you impose some suffering on somebody. But in the case of schadenfreude, you're just witnessing uh, the suffering that came about in some way that you didn't impose, but you are enjoying it.
0: Yeah, so one interesting distinction that you talk about in your article is this distinction between righteous schadenfreude and ugly schadenfreude, Yeah. where I think the basic idea is that righteous schadenfreude, it feels as if that feeling, that that feeling of pleasure that you're getting in your opponent's misery is somehow justified but the ugly ugly schadenfreude you kind of feel ashamed about is that right
1: that's right so um it happens often in life that we uh, encounter somebody else who is suffering and uh, the question is how do we respond to that so one way people respond is by feeling concerned or compassionate um Uh, But another way sometimes people respond is by feeling pleased or happy or gloating over it. And there are three main predictors of whether you're going to feel schadenfreude, that is whether you're going to gloat over somebody else's suffering as opposed to feeling compassionate or concerned. These aren't the only predictors, but three of the main ones um, are that either you envy them or you stand to gain from their loss. So you could think of a sports fan or something, uh, where the opposite team is losing, or um, you think they deserve it. And that's where righteous schadenfreude comes in. So um, whereas sometimes if somebody messes up, you're kind of secretly snickering, like, haha, for example, if you, um, well, I'll give an example from myself. Um, uh, when I started my job over 20 years ago now, um, uh, you know, it was my first job teaching philosophy. And um, my class was scheduled for... Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and don't ask me how, but somehow I had it in my mind that it was Tuesday and Thursday. Um, and then the semester, uh, began, um, the semester began and, um, you know, the first day was a Monday and I didn't go because I thought I was teaching on Tuesday. And so I ran into my department chair and in the office and he's like, well, how did your first class go? And I'm like, well, it's tomorrow. And he looked at me funny and, and he brought out the course catalog and he was like, it says right here, you know? <laughs> and, um, so everybody was asking me, oh, how's your first day teaching? And, and, and so first of all, I was not surprised that my, my boss you know, department chair was pretty upset. I missed my first class. Um, but what I was surprised by was the fact that all of my junior colleagues were just found this absolutely hilarious. I mean, I couldn't have been more entertained. They were like, I'm so relieved Susanna that, you know, you did this thing that I only have nightmares about doing, but you actually did it. I mean, I really entertained a lot of people that week, especially people call me up and say, how was your first day teaching? And I'd say, I didn't go. So, okay. there. I mean, that was misfortune. I goofed a pretty big goof. Um, I haven't done it again since I'm happy to say, but um, you know, here I goofed and other people are laughing. Okay. Now it's not that they thought I deserved it. It's not that they envied me. I was just a beginning professor. It's nothing to envy at all. Um, And um, it's not that they stood to gain, at least not in any straightforward way. Um, but they are feeling pleasure at my loss, but they wasn't righteous. And they were kind of embarrassed. I mean, of course, the moment they were laughing at it, of course, they thought, well, you must feel terrible because after all, this is the thing I have nightmares about. So they sort of apologetically explain, you know, I'm sorry to laugh, it's just so funny and I can understand why they laughed and I didn't care if they laughed, I laughed too. Um, So that's one kind of schadenfreude. You might call it innocuous, Um, but the righteous kind is quite a different animal. The righteous kind is when you think, uh, you know, think of own the libs, you know this meme of uh, the Trump campaign, an actual political campaign. and uh, where you know the whole point is to humiliate your liberal opponents. Um, and oftentimes this involves hoaxing. Um, so you sort of set things up so that people, um, or like you drive a coal truck, you drive a big truck spewing black smoke, you know, just to offend the environmentalists. Um, and that's why it's done. That may or may not be a hoax. Um, but it probably actually is polluting. Um, it's just to kind of get up their nose sort of, and then to enjoy it. Or Trump, I'll read you a quote from a New York Times article. I think this was yesterday reporting on the Republican National Convention, um, Trump's aide said he enjoyed the frustration and anger he caused by holding a political event on the South Lawn of the White House, shattering conventional norms and raising questions about ethics law violations. Um, he relished the fact that nobody could stop him. So, you know, he knew he's going to offend people by, uh, you know, getting everyone else to violate the Hatch Act. The president themselves is, uh, you know, not subject to the Hatch Act, but you know, nobody else. He's, but it is a it is a crime to uh, enable other employees of the federal government to use federal resources for political purposes and for political campaigning. And that's exactly what we saw in spades, um, by, uh, by during the convention. So, um, so that's a case where it's right. It's like they deserve it. You know, you're treating your opponents as somebody who deserves the pain that they're getting, and that's why you're gloating over it. So that's one of the predictors of Schadenfreude is you think the other people deserve it.
0: So do you think there are any cases of righteous Schadenfreude where, you're morally justified in experiencing it or is Schadenfreude in all of its forms, in some sense, morally corrupting to the individual who experiences it. Like I'm thinking about a case where you're feeling pleasure over Hitler's demise, someone who's Mm -hmm. truly evil. Mm -hmm. Could that be a good thing or is Schadenfreude something that you should always try to avoid from a moral standpoint?
1: Good. Yeah. That's, that's, I think the deepest question, um, surrounding this emotion. Um, well, Let's think through a little bit of a case. So we take somebody who's a monster. You could say it's Hitler or you could have an invented monster. It doesn't matter. Um, and we can imagine that this person being a monster has done, you know, has caused untold amounts of suffering and cruel imposed cruelty and tolerated it on all, on, you know, thousands and thousands of people, including, let's suppose, your own children. Um, and then finally, you get to witness them, them fall. But of course, it's important for us to have a potential case of schadenfreude that we're not just witnessing the uh, the lessening of their political power, uh, or the lessening of their ability to inflict cruelty, but that we're witnessing also their pain and their suffering. Um, so if the monster begins to topple, there's all sorts of things you might feel in that situation, relieved that it's finally over. Um, you feel relieved that your children, if they've survived, actually did survive. Um, you'll feel, you know, pleased and, and just you know, breathing a breath of fresh air. Um, the question is whether, on top of all of those things, uh, what should we say if you feel you know pleasure at seeing, for example, you know the guillotine come down on the head, or or um, this or this this fallen this fallen leader, you know, shaking his fist into nothing but air. Um, if there were videos of this sort of scene where they're limping um, and cringing in pain. Um, and so on, suffering injuries from you know a rebellious army uh, and it was looping on social media as we see, in other cases, you know, looping videos of of the death of someone at the hands of the police. If now we're seeing looping videos of you know injury of a monster who's inflicted so much cruelty, um, would you find it therapeutic to watch it? Um, now, I don't think there's any question that many people would find it therapeutic and would want to watch it and would like it. Now that doesn't yet tell us, what the moral status of that emotion is, which tells us that it's very easy to feel. Uh but what but I think there's maybe two main options for what we should say about whether it's okay to feel it. Is it a fitting thing to feel? And I I I went through, I mean, I think it's useful to draw the distinction between the things that clearly are fitting to feel, like you're relieved that it's over, um, versus this other thing that we're talking about that's beyond above and beyond that, which is you know, witnessing the pain of this person sort of. And you could you could pull these things apart. I mean, you could ask, well, suppose that he was in pain, but you weren't witnessing it, or suppose he wasn't in pain, or he was in pain, but you didn't know it, um, but still the monster had finally toppled, um, you know, would you feel just exactly the same thing? And if you would, then that's the that's the um, key that you're not feeling schadenfreude. It's if you would feel this extra thing above and beyond that is, you know, pleasure and actually watching them suffer, that's the feeling that's at issue. Um, so I feel there's a bit of a confound even when we think about the cases, because we don't want to confuse, you know, the clearly empowering um, and proper feeling of like "Phew, um, thank God that's over. It's time for some proper government. Um, we don't want to conf- conflate that perfectly appropriate feeling, um, with the d- quite different feeling or anyway, a potentially different feeling, which is pleasure in the suffering. So, um, and I, I do think it's somewhat of a subtle question. Um, well, but let's talk about, so, so, I mean, one, one option says, uh, it would be demeaning. It would be demeaning to you, to feel suffering at him because, because you would be demeaning him you know here's this person who is a human being and can be demeaned and so if you feel pleasure at the suffering that's that's a way of being demeaning and that's probably what schopenhauer had in mind when he said that it was a diabolical emotion um i don't think schopenhauer was thinking much about the silly sorts of cases i described where someone's just kind of entertained by someone walking into a pole or something even if it does actually hurt and we walk into a pool um you know it's not like we want to say you're never allowed to laugh if somebody wa-. basically i walked into a pool when i didn't go to my class on time i was basically the sort of you know, complicated equivalent of walking into, you know, slipping on a banana peel or something.
0: I have to say though, I've never understood that kind of humor, like the kind of Uh America's uh, funniest home videos humor, where you're just Uh laughing at someone falling and hurting themselves. I just, it's not my personal brand of humor, but I get that it's a thing.
1: Yeah, it is. It does seem to be a thing. And I, 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 am with you in that in aesthetically, um, you know, I don't don't sit around watching it either or Epic fails and so on. Um, Um, but I think that they, what is the emotional payoff of those things is that I think they're kind of empowering, you know, so my colleagues, for example, it's like empowerment on the cheap because you take this trivial thing, which is going to class on the right day, which basically should just be like tying your shoes or wearing shoelaces or something pretty trivial and convert a trivial thing into an opportunity to feel you know sort of superior and I, that's okay if they want to feel superior they were superior they went to class on the right day and i didn't so there's no denying that um, but and if that feels good great you know everyone should feel good or you know if you if you watch these epic fails Um, You know, witnessing the pain part starts to feel a little bit more cringeworthy because it seems like it may cross the line into being somehow demeaning. But I think there are forms of schadenfreude that are not demeaning. And then there are other forms that potentially are. And the hard case, the test case that you're bringing up is, well, what if the person um, that is the potential target of your demeaning feeling is himself someone who doesn't even seem to have a category of demeaning because they've treated other people, you know, are they demeanable or not? And so this is a deep question um, in all sorts of ethical theories of can you, you know, is there such a thing as a sort of undemeanable human being or not? Um, if you think they're undemeanable, then you think, sure, go ahead, feel, you know, if you do, if you do feel pleased in watching him suffer, this monster who's finally toppling, you know, above and beyond feeling uh, the proper empowerment uh, that you should now that this regime is finally over, um then, um, you know, is it okay? Are are they undemeanable? Are they demeanable, but it's somehow okay to demean them? And so, you know, the sort of agape option, the very thorough, the very kind of pure option says, you know, agape is a, you know, sort of abstract form of love that, uh, you know, can be felt toward anybody completely independently of their specific features or things they've done. So um, it's just uh, a, a feeling in Christianity, um, a type of love directed toward kind of humanity, at su- humanity as such instantiated in any human being and perhaps other creatures too. Like I'm sure you can feel it toward your dog or dogs as such. Um, okay. But then the other option says, well, look, you know, if you have a monster, they've sort of stepped outside of, they've stepped off the grid of morality because they've shown that they've proven themselves to be completely unaccountable. And now I like the way you put it when you said, would it demean yourself? Would, it, would the Schadenfro herself become demeaned in celebrating the pain of that uh, fallen monster in that moment? And I do have some sympathy for that position that says, well, you know, basically the position you're putting yourself in as the Schadenfro, um felt toward this monster is you're saying you're a little bit like the prison guard who is allowed to violate, um, you know, to do things to the prisoner that you wouldn't be allowed to do to the regular citizens. Um, because this person is kind of, you're because this person supposedly has broken the social contract. And so as the prison guard, you can do things to, to him that you're, you couldn't do to somebody who hadn't. Um, it's a little bit like that, except with morality, like, look, this person's proved themselves unaccountable. So now I can be unaccountable too. And I kind of have the sense that you're kind of both being dragged down together at that point. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's better not to watch the looping videos and maybe it's better not to have the the platforms allow these looping videos of pain, you know, on them in that, in that case. Um, But there's one, you know, the reason I think it's a hard and not really a straightforward question is that, um, you know, if you think about Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes um, had so many psychological insights about uh, dynamics of superiority, uh, where he pointed out that people are very, can very easily be prone to feel superior to somebody else. And when that happens, a completely natural response is to get offended and to feel superior back. So for example, you know, in middle school or in high school, perhaps, you know, if some, if you heard that so-and-so thinks she's better than you, you know, And when you heard that, your reaction was probably not like, no, we're all the same. You know, your reaction was probably like, she's not better than me, you know, I'm better than her. Um, (laughs) So, and then if she heard you say that about her, then you'd kind of be off on a cycle, which is, has the structure of a cycle of revenge and makes for very good drama. It makes for very good movies, It makes for very good Shakespeare. It makes for very good literature um, because it really happens and people understand that type of dynamic. Uh, Unaccountability can feel, can feel a bit like that.
0: Yeah, when, uh, so much of that was really helpful, especially one thing that really stood out to me was the how you're going to feel when there's the downfall of someone who's truly morally evil. Obviously, there are going to be a lot of good feelings associated with that. Some of those might be clearly morally justified, like that feeling of relief that the threat of evil is now taken down. But that's not schadenfreude. And the question of schadenfreude is something different. But I, I kind of want to use this now as a bridge, perhaps, to talk about that the role schadenfreude is playing in contemporary political polarization. Mm -hmm. As you're saying, there's a way in which it kind of functions to drag both parties down. It almost operates, as you're suggesting, as a kind of negative feedback loop. And I feel like that is just, when I was reading that in your article, that just really resonated with me in terms of uh, being a good analysis as to what's happening right now in the current political situation, at least in the United States, right? If you believe that your political opponent has no regard for the human life of people on your side, right? then it's easier to dehumanize them in turn, because how, you know, they don't have any regard for human life. What kind of human doesn't have any regard for human life? And then once you dehumanize them, right. that makes them hate you so much more, right? So it's like, right. look at these Trump conservative Nazis. They love it when uh, liberals get owned, and when minorities get attacked, and they're really moral lowlifes. And then the conservatives will say, Look at these l- liberal elitists who think they're so much better than us right. on their moral high horse, and yet they right. support anarchism and Antifa and attacking Trump supporters. Right. They're really the moral lowlifes. And it's this insane negative feedback loop of polarization. And I'm starting to be of the opinion that, like, there's no, the horse is out of the barn, and I don't know how we step back from the brink here as a country. So could you just say a few more words about, I guess, yeah, the role that it's playing in deepening political polarization?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, um, I think those are all good observations. Um, You know, I think historically, uh, in terms of American politics, there was quite a self-conscious shift, a decision made around the time of Newt Gingrich. Um, it's been well researched um, to change the mode of politics, which was never um, the mode of politics where you treat your opponents, talk about your opponents is just simply illegitimate. Um, so historically, I think that type that that type of discourse, Among the political elites, you know, the political elites directed at one another, not yet talking about um, how, you know, ordinary people talk to one another um, or talk to the political elites. But, um, you know, Newt Gingrich had a very... um, intentional, made a very intentional decision and trained, you know, young people going into politics to speak quite differently about Democrats, um, and to treat the opponents as illegitimate. So it it certainly predates Trumpism. Um, but it, it, what's different with Trump. And, and when you think of the kind of shock jocks of, um, you know, there were shock jocks in the sixties, there was this guy called Joe Pine, there was Don Imus in the nineties. Um, it was, it was a, a similar type of discourse. Uh, there was certainly a lot of schadenfreude, but there was also the whole point was to incite offense um, and to uh, tap into that possibility of of human emotion where you've just kind of at your wits end with people. So it's very much the politics of anti-politics. That is, if you think of politics as discussion, if you think of democratic politics as discussion and inquiry and the sorts of things John Dewey really focused on as the types of States of mind that a democracy required, and therefore that education in a democracy should cultivate. This is quite the opposite of that. Uh, you get people, you know, riled up. You get people distrustful of others, even as discussants, um, and it's it's very bad for democratic politics. Um, so, you know, looping forward uh, to the to the case that you, you described where, you know, it's not just that Republicans do this and Democrats sit there um, and take it, but don't do the same thing back. I think you're right that it sort of pervaded the culture that uh, there is, you know, po- there is a type of polarization where um, what started as a mode of discourse between political elites and what started as really a quite intentional um, strategy on the part of one part of the Republican Party has now, you know, infused the culture um, and has even created certain personality types or cultural types that you can grow into on the left and the right. So the Washington Post, I mean, I think it's fair to say that this cultural type attracts, for example, far more boys than girls, more men, young men than women. Um, perhaps the reason for that is because it celebrates unaccountability. You know, it's sort of like uh, the, the a stereotypical kind of bad boy is, uh, you know, a lawbreaker. Think of the figure of like a cowboy or a gangster. Um, those are kind of gendered male stereotypes, whereas there's obviously such a thing as a stereotypical bad girl, um, but it's it's different. It's, uh, you know, a stereotypical bad girl is somebody who uh, flouts the cultural norms of interpersonal relations of personified authority of the male boss or the father or the boyfriend. Or, um, so it's, it's it looks a little different. Not to say there isn't Laura Ingraham and other people who inhabit this type of political discourse. Um, but yeah, there there is a type of now it's become part of the political culture to treat opponents as illegitimate. And I like your phrase, "the horses out of the barn." It takes a whole new social compact. It's going to take um, a new way of thinking about. Um, You know, what our model for political participation, when Schadenfreude is the reigning political emotion, the model of the political participant becomes a cheering or a sneering fan, um, you know, who agrees or disagrees with some leader. So that sounds a lot like authoritarianism where you have a leader who is himself, um, Exercising, Schadenfreude, or expressing it, performing it, inciting it, um, and then you have fans who are cheering it on. So, boy, what a far cry from Habermas's picture of you know the the um, the the polity as a place for rational discourse, even the polity of, you know, to make it less intellectual, you know, that the polity could be a place where people try to figure out together what would be a good solution to a problem that we all face. For example, um, you know, what would be a good solution? How could we most economically uh, rearrange our public spaces in the pandemic? Um, What would work behaviorally with kids? I mean, the person, the people who know the most about what kinds of Safe practices would actually work, and how to get people to comply with them are, you know, going to be the people who work with the kids, not the scientists who are studying airborne transmission of the virus. You know, their specialty is about you know invisible particles. Um, you know, the people who are working with other people, their specialty is sort of at the user end. Um, so, are, you know, maybe you need breaks mask breaks, like breaks where people can safely take off their masks. That's going to make it easier for them to wear it during the day. Just something simple like that. There is a case where you have something that affects everybody, that everybody could be, you know, working together to figure out how can we deal with this situation that's affecting everybody. Um, To do that, you need trust. You need, and to need to get trust, trust isn't some sort of internal thing that you have latent in your deep soul. Trust is something that gets, you know, built and maintained through actual, Um, practices, like the reason why people from corporate groups to school groups to camps, um, you know, do trust building exercises. (laughs) You know, the way you come to trust people is by doing things together, making decisions together, deciding on things together, recognizing the common purposes that you have. So I think to get the horse back in the barn, you need um, kind of very heavily participatory democracy that takes us out of the realm of just cheering. Um, if I could say one other thing about, um, about another related emotion that goes along with these exchanges of schadenfreude and exchanges of feelings of superiority and dismissal, um, it's an interesting type of hypocrisy, uh, you know, char- charges of hypocrisy, like you mentioned, um, elites, y- you know, that, uh, the, uh, that, uh, elites from, from the point of view of the opponents of liberalism, um, coastal elites are seen often as, um, you know, high being kind of high-minded and um attached to these principles, but yet then violating those same principles and their actions. And so they're charged with hypocrisy. Um And I think in politics, we've seen two really different types of charges of hypocrisy. There's the type that appeals to principles. Um, for example, when you do civil disobedience, you're saying, There are laws and principles that are supposed, there are principles that are supposed to constrain the laws and the practices of the country like democracy or social equality, but those principles are being violated. And so we need to defend the principles um, through our political action. So that's like principled anti-hypocrisy. You're upset with a government for allowing departures from principles that they're supposed to adhere to and that you yourself adhere to. Um, And so you're an anti-hypocrite and you're saying, look, we got to say it's in the name of the principles. (laughs) That's why the disability Obedience is civil instead of criminal. Whereas the type of charges of hypocrisy we see um, very salient in politics now, and Putin does this all the time, Trump does this all the time, um, Trumpism does this all the time, is a very different kind. It's more nihilistic. So for example, um, Bill O'Reilly at one point was interviewing Trump about his chumminess with Putin. He said, you know, Putin's a killer. Um, and Trump said, Well, you think we don't have killers? Um, so it's like a kind of rhetorical whataboutism, where the logic is, you know, everyone's a killer, so being a killer is okay. Another example is in the the height of the Russia probe, this was going on for a while, as the Mueller report was being prepared. Um, out of really thin air, it's now been shown to be entirely fabricated, um, Trump made charges that the Democrats were colluding with Ukraine, So this was entirely false. It's been shown to be false. Um, But you can see how it exactly mirrored the charges he was being that were made against him. And it was, so this is not, um, so then you could say, well, look, if you could perform or display the Democrats do this too, then that's not a defense of principles. It's not a defense of anti-corruption principles. It's saying, um, so what? You know, everybody's corrupt. You're corrupt. I'm corrupt. Corruption's okay. That's just the way it is. Um, he's a killer. We're killers. Killers. Okay. So that, kind of being set up for, as charges of hypocrisy, um, I think there, it's very, very different whether the anti-hypocrisy is nihilistic or the anti-hypocrisy is principled. And when it's nihilistic, we have another horse out of the barn, another kind of related horse. We have a horse out of, is run out of the barn of morality or principle. Um, and to get it back, we need to show that there is such a thing as being governed by principles. Um, there is such a thing as them having bite, and it really matters whether we live in a place where we're answerable to them or not.
0: Yeah, that kind of uh, <laughs> that kind of pervasive nihilism. That was really helpful. That dis- that distinction. That kind of pervasive nihilism about politics that you speak of. It makes me think of a column that the philosopher Jason Stanley wrote in the New York Times in 2012, actually, in which he was talking about how we're living in this era of post-truth politics and how mm-hmm. everyone's of the opinion, the public's of the opinion that all politicians lie. So the public, I think, the basic idea is the public no longer cares or expects whether politicians tell the truth or right. not. And ultimately right. his diagnosis is that, um, but yet politicians continue to lie. So if the public doesn't believe them, why would they continue to lie? And his diagnosis is, well, ultimately what politicians are doing is that they're bullshitting and in a, in a technical sense, which was specified by Harry Frankfurt. He, He came out with this book called, uh, on bullshit where bullshit speech is kind of intended to persuade without regard for the truth. And I think he, Stanley says that ultimately all political speech now, or at least a lot of it, is just pervaded with this kind of bullshit rhetoric. D- do you see it in that light as well? Is the correct interpretation really that nihilistic?
1: Yeah, I think that I think the discourse plays into nihilism. I think it's meant to uh, there's a type of propaganda that's meant to um, make cultivate a feeling of nihilism and a feeling of giving up on the part of the populace. Um, and so I think Jason's uh, completely onto something there. This performative um, this performative nihilism, performative cynicism, where you just fabricate, a, entirely fabricate a narrative um, about the Ukraine, it's a reason why it's mirroring the charges of collusion against him. Um, the reason it's mirroring, it, ha- it has to mirror it so that people can say, well, look, it's all the same. Um, another mode of doing this is, to cultivate disagreement. Um, and one of the things that Jason has emphasized that I think is, uh, an, an insight that's important is, um, uh, that what might sound like an assertion in political speech, um, can, can be, you know, something quite different, or at least it can be not aimed to persuade anybody, like you said. Um, and so one, another mode of this is to sow confusion among people. So when, um, we first, we're discussing whether to wear masks at the beginning of the pandemic, and um, Dr. Fauci said yes, wear a mask. And then Trump, you know, wouldn't wear a mask or said not to wear a mask, or he would publicly disagree with him. You see this in other authoritarian leaders too. Jair uh, Bolsonaro did the same thing; he disagreed with his health minister and then he fired him. Um, and the the role of of these very public disagreements it's not to it's not that they're incompetent. It's not that they sort of don't know what they think. Um, it's rather that they are trying to make people feel confused so that you have to choose sides um so that there's nothing that you, you won't be able to choose sides on the basis of principles you'll have to just choose who you're loyal to um that's a way of governing uh where that's a go- way of governing where the um the reigning um the reigning mode of participation is to just be loyal to somebody um not to try to work it out so I, you know, post-truth makes it sound like there's some temporal sequence and first there was truth and now there's no such thing as truth. And I, I wouldn't put it that way. I don't think Jason does either. Um, but it's rather that, uh, you're not trying to care if people lie because everybody lies. And so then that's just a way of, again, performing unaccountability and, you know, bringing it back to Schadenfreude, the reason that, you know, this emotion is nothing but a celebration of unaccountability. Um, you know, that the, you might think the most basic sort of human accountability is concern for another person, especially in the political realm, um, where, you know, there is only politics because people are living together. Um, if they weren't living together, there'd be no politics. Of course, we're never not living together. So there's always politics. Um, but the most basic, um, the most basic sort of response to someone else is having to be accountable to them in one way or another. Um, you're, you're, you're going to be living in their eyes and they're living in your eyes. You know, that's just that's just society. Uh, schadenfreude is celebrating your unaccountability to the other people driving a coal truck that's spewing black smoke is performing unaccountability for environmental destruction. Um, and no wonder people feel so exuberant about it because it's such a heavy burden that if you act as if you've somehow pushed it off, um, that's going to feel very empowering. So that's part of the appeal of it. It's a little bit like, Smoking a cigarette. I'm not a smoker myself, but I understand well the appeal of smoking cigarettes, which is that um, you know, you just get an excuse. You can say, I'm just going out for smoke, you know, you get a little a little free pass away from social pressures um you can be by yourself in your own kind of universe where you're controlling fire and making a little tip of your cigarette light up like your own little star um so that's great i mean i understand the appeal of it it's a uh, y- y- you can be exempt kind of blissfully exempt a little vacation from the burdens of life now most people i dare say who smoke you know they It's a way of breaking up the day. It's a way of um, having a little temporary vacation from life from life's burdens, you know? So it, it is a little kind of miniature celebration of unaccountability, but it's precisely one that's like circumscribed by like the smoking break. You, you end the break and then you go back to your life, you know, now refresh because you had a break, kind of like you have a vacation, you end the vacation, you go back and you're like refreshed because you had a vacation. Well, schadenfreude is a celebration of unaccountability that is a way of life. So that's different. That's like the permanent vacation from morality. Um, and that's the real problem.
0: Permanent vacation for morality. I like that. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, we're just all plugged into this social media machine 24 seven that we're just constantly addicted to it. And I like the cigarette analogy because when I was reading your article, it really, and specifically when I was reading about how you were talking about the neuroscience of Schadenfreude, Mm -hmm. I think you raised some experiments that Mina Sikora, if I'm pronouncing that right, Mm -hmm. conducted. And it really reminded me of an addiction, the way it can kind of rewire your brain. It reminded me of that classic experiment with, and I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, but with the the mice, right? They're fed, I think, cocaine, right? And they And they get that hit of dopamine and then they'll continue yeah. going back to it, even to their own detriment. And even to the point where the mouse will no longer eat, the mouse will no longer drink, the mouse just wants that hit of dopamine. And I think maybe that's a kind of metaphor for... What's happening to our society on a collective level, right? Like we're all just completely addicted to this Schadenfreude, and we're plugged in twenty-four-seven. That will continue, just going back to it, even if it's to the detriment of our democracy.
1: Yeah, I. Um, it is. It does become a kind of system where the groups need one another. I mean, you couldn't imagine. Um, you couldn't imagine a, a Trumpist Republican Party without the liberals. I mean, it would just be like um, you know, the, it's a, it's a system defined by its opponents. Um, you know, there's, if there's no, Carl Schmitt made this point when he said politics is set up to be a division between friends and enemies. Friends in his technical sense meant people who belong in the polity, but they're always defined in his picture in relation to the enemies. So if you take away the enemies, there's no more politics. Um, so that's why no matter how much rhetoric there may be about getting the people out of the country who supposedly don't belong here. Um, you got to have the idea of them or you couldn't have that type of politics at all. Um, if we could loop back for a minute to, um, I think the, uh, uh the, uh, question about whether it's ever legitimate to feel schadenfreude. Um, you we were talking before about Hobbes, you know, the, the emotion that Hobbes thought was most problematic that had to be in check, kept in check by, uh, in his picture, an authoritarian leader, an absolute sovereign, that emotion was pride. He called it pride, vainglory. So that's the feeling that you are, you know, better in moral worth than somebody else. And it's a very interesting emotion um, that ties to your question about whether it's ever legitimate. Like if you see a monster fall, if you think about gay pride, black pride, um, you know, cases where you are um, uh, undoing the feeling of disempowerment, that has been brought about by social inequality. So when you're making a gesture of overcoming or undoing social inequality, at least in your own mind, um, if we call that pride, is that the same thing or not? So, for example, if you think, look, I have been under the heel. My neck has been under the heel of this boot for decades. And finally, you know, I get to see this oppressor suffer. Of course, I'm going to feel, you know. Don't take, don't take this away from me. Don't take away the satisfaction of my beholding the suffering, because it's about time, you know. It's about time that I felt, you know, that he was lower than me after all these years of abuse.
0: Um, Almost like narcissus in a way.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Um, And so then you could ask a version of your question earlier, of like, well. Could that catharsis take the form of Schadenfreude? You know, if we see, I mean, you expect there to be some kind of catharsis, um, you know, well, first of all, the psychological question, would it feel cathartic to see? I mean, if I, if you said, well, suppose some big hurricane hits Mar-a-Lago and injures, you know, the the owner of the biggest, most famous mansion. um, And, you know, then there's somehow videos of him, like, you know, limping around and crying in pain and bleeding and it's looping and it's on, you know, everywhere on every news channel, are you going to watch it? Um, And I still, I mean, it's hard to sometimes say counterfactually, you know, what you would do in certain situations. Sometimes people are wrong about those things. But so far as I can tell, I don't think I, I don't think I would want to watch it. But when I think my way into these other scenarios, if somebody told me, I'm going to feel therapeutic. Or if someone told me, you're Susanna, you're going to feel. It's very therapeutic to watch it. And moreover, um, you'll feel like you missed something if you didn't like see them suffer. Um, it's a little bit like now you're feeling empowered in, um, in a major serious way. That's kind of akin to the minor silly way that my colleagues felt empowered when I didn't go to class on the right day. Um, um, you know, is it, could it even be important to feel schadenfreude? Could it be, uh, that you, you have to in that situation? And, um, um, you know, I just think that's, I think that's one of these questions is the reason why moral philosophy is so hard. You know, it's a little bit hard. It's just a little bit hard to say. Um, it would be nice to have some, some films, some pieces of history, some movies, uh, that, uh, that depict it so we could get a better, a better grip on it. Um, but, uh, I'd like to think that I'd like to think there's something right about the agape option, that it would be enough just to be like, look, I don't even want to see your face again. I don't want to watch you on a video after you've been oppressing me and my family, all these, I don't want to watch you on a video, go away. I want you to just to be out of my life, you know? Um, I'm reminded of Alan Dershowitz, uh, his defense at one point of the death penalty, um, where he tried to talk people into, trying to say why you need the death penalty. He would say, well, look, suppose some horrible guy did horrible things to your sister, which of course he goes on to describe in too much detail, wouldn't you want to see him die? Wouldn't you want to? And, you know, the answer might be, you'd want to, but, um, you know, the state shouldn't be the agent of that. Um, So sometimes when we ask these kind of questions about individual morality, about the monster, um, maybe they're a little bit underdescribed in that, you know, yes, it would be therapeutic. That's no denying it. Should it happen, meaning should it happen sort of with the power of the state behind it? I'd certainly be very uncomfortable with it being on kind of national TV that we're broadcasting the fall of the the dictator, or, you know, that it's kind of got the blessing of the new government to like celebrate the pain of the old government. There's both, it makes me morally uneasy. Uh, There's also, of course, practical reasons not to do that, which is that uh, so long as people are still divided, you're just going to start these cycles again. You're going to offend the people who are mad that you're celebrating their pain. It's a classic, I mean, it's a mainstay of far-right, conspiracy theory websites and propaganda to have fabrications of other people feeling schadenfreude so that you are, have the, paves the way for you to feel it towards them. You're
0: justified in feeling it.
1: Yeah. So like, you know, Ilhan Omar was celebrating the Notre Dame fires, you know, the Arabs in New Jersey were, you know, celebrating 9-11. These things were completely made up, but they're made up, um, so that, you know, they're saying they felt, schaden- they're celebrating your pain. Well, then we're going to celebrate your pain. Um, So that's, it's really a mainstream. So I'd be very uncomfortable with, um, you know, promoting it as a means of therapy. Perhaps there could be other means of therapy. that don't take that form.
0: Yeah. I feel like social media is just making so many of the problems that we're talking about so much worse, right? Whether it is morally justified or not to watch a video of the downfall of your oppressor, those videos are constantly available to you on social media. constantly fed to you on social media. And, um, also just going back to the confusion that people like Trump are sowing. I feel like the way that the news cycle operates on places like social media feeds into that confusion because there's just so much news and the news cycle is constantly changing so quickly that these lies can be disseminated and, you know, the lies can get halfway around the world before the truth gets a chance to put its boots on. And, and, and all of this just is happening so quickly it's hard to track who who started it it's hard it's hard to determine that let's say in your example the conservatives are the, are the ones that fabricated that foy to begin with and they were and it originated with them so it's kind of hard to trace back the causal lineages of all these things as well and then there's i mean there's so many things to talk about here there's the fact that people become ensconced in these epistemic echo chambers where they're just being fed back content that aligns with their ideological views and that can make them more convinced that their side is correct. So I don't, I I just feel like social media is deranging so much of this stuff and I don't know how to break out of this social media nightmare.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, that, um, it, it has the the horse is out of the barn like you said but it's also true that the far right is very uh integrated and, and well organized in terms of its use of social media so there's been wonderful uh research uh in Europe um reported especially by Anne Applebaum which is where i learned about it in her book Twilight of Democracy um about how even the exact same images are just used over and over um in, for example, accusing people of celebrating the, uh, the Notre Dame fires, um, just the, really the, the, you know, the exact same things. And so you could, th- there are, there are analytic agencies, um, uh, I think it's called the Institute for, well, I, I might misremember the name if I try to say what it's called, actually I can look up, um, the Institute for a Strategic Dialogue, okay, mm. uh, which is a British organization that identifies, uh, high activity users, which is to say bots, um, so you, you can find where those are and you can see um, what they put through. So there's, there's sorts of fake news sites that masquerade in this country as local newspapers. Um, and, you know, we'll have some stories that are like, um, you know, where to get the best deal on, you know, tires. Um, and then alongside that, just pieces of plain propaganda. Um, and ser- similarly, um, the, the far right, uh, party Vox in Spain, uh, led by Santiago um, Abascal, uh, you know, he retweeted the same images as were retweeted by this far right guy, um, uh, uh, the fires. So um, you really can see a systematic effort, and it's very important that there are uh, investigators who find out who's funding these sites. Um, presumably, they're funded in the case of Spain by Vox, um, the, the ones that are located in Spain. Um, but you could have all over Europe, people peddling exactly the same lines. So that's quite a systematic effort. I don't think we have something like that on the left. The Washington Post did a wonderful profile of this guy I mentioned in the op-ed named Adam Rahuba, um, who is on the left. He was a Sanders supporter, and he was a sort of much less wealthy counterpart of the late Andrew Breitbart. Um, he, he made up this hoax, so he made up this hoax on Facebook that... Um, which posted on Facebook, which fooled a lot of people saying there's going to be flag burners at the cemetery in Pennsylvania. And he did it in order to draw out the militias who would come to this graveyard only to find nothing at all. Um, so haha, ha, you know, own the, own the militia. Um, so that's just, I mean, and it seemed totally natural. They have this great video interview of him. Yeah, you know, he's, just, he's just a guy. Um, you know, it seems totally natural for him to do that. Why? Because now it has become like a mode of activism. So it's not that you don't find it on the left, but I don't think you find it on the left. I don't think there's evidence of finding it on the left in anything like the amazingly, um, uh, well organized way that you find it on the right. I don't think there's an analog of you know Bannon's organization. Um, I don't think there's an analog of you know oligarchs who can buy a bot farm if they want to, um, or um, rich billionaires um, to to for political ends, as was done. Uh, in the Brexit campaign. And We know a lot about that now. Um, so I don't. So while I think I'm agreeing with your point that it's sort of culturally, you know, it's, it's now infused the political culture. Um, I don't think it's that um, you can't sort of trace it back to where it came from. So, I, you know, it, it sort of we could think about this a little bit in terms of, you know, how psychologistic should we be? You know, So in the 50s, there was a book called The Authoritarian Personality um, that tried to make the case that uh, there's a profile, a sort of personality type um, that's especially sympathetic to authoritarian leadership. Um, and there was supposed to be a scale that had nine different strands to it. Um, and you could measure uh, just in the same way that people think you can measure personality types, you know, how authoritarian is somebody. And supposedly this measurement would get at some, I mean, on one, on one development of the idea, uh, you would be discovering personality, like some people are introverts, some people are extroverts. Okay. Some people are kind of latent authoritarian. So there's a model on which you say, well, look, it's just that there are some psych- psychological dispositions that have a sort of authoritarian political subject in the embryonic form in a kind of latent form. And all you have to do is you know, get them into the political situation where there is authoritarian government and suddenly they're going to really like that. Um, that's one picture. Uh, and if you took that type of picture and transferred it to schadenfreude, a very close cousin, you know, you would say, well, is the picture that you sort of have these kind of latent schadenfros. Um, <laughs> and that if you just give them the right condition, like, boom, they're a schadenfreude and it's a sort of type of mind you can have. I think that's just not at all the right picture. When you look at how this emotion is cultivated and incited, um, through the use of, uh, you know, bot farms and propaganda that makes very, that uses the internet. In fact, you'd be unimaginable without the internet. Um, then, uh, you see that there's something within, but what's within isn't a fascist. What's within is like a capability of feeling offended. Um, which, you know, sometimes you should be offended. Uh, you know, if someone has their boot on your neck, you sure should be offended. Um, but that's not schadenfreude, (laughs) you know, that's the capability to be offended, to turn it into schadenfreude and to turn it into a political movement and a mode of activism. You got to add a whole lot of other things. You have to add a big dose of lies. You have to add a big dose of social divisions, for example, by saying these people are celebrating your pain. If you add all those things, it's pretty easy to make anybody into a schadenfreude if they believe your lies. Um. So that's just to say that if we want to intervene here, do we intervene by changing our soul and self-regulation, or do we kind of say, oh dear, you know, we're so bad, uh, people are so bad, why are people so bad, or do we intervene on, you know, the the instruments of political techniques that are being used uh, to make it so very widespread? And I think the answer is clear, that we have to intervene um, in the in the techniques that are using it, even though it's not that it's technologically determined, you know, we all know that only some things go viral, kittens, um, offense. And when you're talking to your friends, sort of, when you're talking to your friends, you send things that are, that offend you. Um, otherwise you can, you send kind of good newsy things to anybody, um, or kittens. So I was just a bizarre kind of limited set of things that can go viral. So it's psychologically constrained, but it's not that there's a sort of latent Schadenfreude within it's rather that there is, um, you know, a very poorly, you know, there's a, 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 set of platforms that just allow these things on there. It, 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 it needs to be, um, it's a very important question that, uh, I don't know the answer to, um, what should you do about it? I mean, you could break up the companies is one thing you could do, obviously. You could also fund local news. You could make people not dependent on these platforms for news by, you know, just like after, Uh, you know, in Britain, in the, in the UK after the war, and because Stalin and Hitler had used the radio and had huge propaganda machines, the UK decided we need to have some way, some instrument, some mechanism of communicating with the public. And so we're going to fund the BBC. And it was an amazing thing. The BBC, all sorts of information came to it. It was free. Um, You could, um, you know, it was a resource for everybody. Um, So there could be something analogous to that, where there's a big influx of funding into local newspapers that somehow manages to thread the needle between not being state-sponsored media, but being, you know, having an infrastructure of public information that's subsidized, um, uh, that still, where the the press can still be, you know, independent of the government. That's kind of another way of thinking about how to do it. A third third type of idea is... um, you know, one that some interesting libertarians have developed, um, which is that what if we think of our data as things that we sell? So for example, as it stands, there's this concept techno feudalism, um, as it stands, you know, we, we're like the serfs. We give all these data to these companies. You know, we, we like things, we press a like button, you know, we share information, the companies make all sorts of money off of it. Uh, and then they use the data to, you know, very often nefarious ends, as we can see in our discussion of politics. Okay. But what if we were selling our data? What if they had to pay us for it? Because, you know, it's the means of production, right? So suppose, um, you know, we get to use the services, whether we're being used, whether our data is useful to them or not. So it's like feudalism. We get to use the land, you know, whether we're producing stuff or not, because we have these lords over us. But what if you change the model to something more like capitalism and less like feudalism? So now um, my data is part of the means of production. I can sell it to you. Um, you can pay me more. Maybe you can incentivize me if I have very useful data to you. Um, so that's a different way of thinking about it. That would change a change a lot.
0: Yeah. I think Andrew Yang has talked a little bit about that. If I'm not mistaken, he was at the democratic uh, yeah. one candidate for the,
1: it's certainly a liber- you know, it's a, it's a way of, you know, it's a way of, um, Whatever the advantages and drawbacks of the transition from feudalism to capitalism were, all the advantages and drawbacks of turning something that wasn't a market into a market, namely labor. And we all know there's like a lot of drawbacks and there's, you know, some advantages. Or anyway, if, if the options are feudalism or capitalism, you know, there are some, there are some, you know, what are the good things supposed to be about capitalism as opposed to feudalism is you have more freedom. You, could, you know, you can supposedly... If you have it, you have it. Um, You know, you don't have to work at anything. No one's forcing you, supposedly, to work any particular job. Um, You know, now we all know it's more complicated once there are, you know, if you have nothing to sell but your labor power. Um, But it's also true that if you're born on the land, you do not have to remain an onion farmer for the rest of your life. And, you know, yay capitalism. So uh, from that point of view, that's why the libertarians like it. If you you think of your data, you know, not as your labor, but data is analogous to labor and you can, or labor power, more exactly. Exactly. Um, so now you can sell it. Um, that just changes the whole structure of the industry. Now, just in saying that all by itself, it doesn't yet, you know, how, how does that prevent Cambridge Analytica, you know, scandal? Right. Um, it, it doesn't yet prevent it. You still need some sort of, you still need a dose of regulation. Um, but it might also give the trolls something to do. These people who are kind of making up these stories all day long, you know, they are people making up misogynistic, you know, uh, commentaries on, you know, the people who are very good gamers, you know, maybe they could have something to do. Maybe they could be put to use, um, you know, uh, generating good data for some machine learning program or something. If, um, it was regulated, there'd be a way of maybe orchestrating that a little bit more instead of just, you know, leaving everyone to their own devices.
0: Yeah. That way of framing the data problem as a transition from feudalism to capitalism is really helpful. I've never thought about it like that. Um, That's
1: from Glenn Weil and Eric Posner in their book, Radical Markets. They have this chapter on digital democracy. Um, you know, they're, they're libertarians. They, they they think that, you know, they find a very close relationship between, you know, markets and democracy. And of course here it's important that the market is not a market of money. It's a market of, it's a market of data. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's worth I'll thinking through.
0: That out, cause I really like that. I want to transition to, um, the article that you wrote on authoritarianism and the relationship between authoritarianism and science. Two things I just want to say quickly that you made me think of when you were talking about all that related to social media. You know, I'm not exactly sure how big these networks of alt-right troll farms are, but it seems to me that they're having such an inordinate influence just in terms of fostering this kind of atmosphere of testimonial skepticism, right? So even if someone is engaging in good faith and they're not a bot, it's just easy. And almost rational in a lot of cases to assume that they might be a bot, just and or that they might be spreading mm-hmm. fake news, or that they might be acting in bad faith, because there's so much of that going on. So it just seems like they've completely polluted the informational channels in that way. And another mm-hmm. another problem that I've noticed a lot more recently is just the ambiguity ambiguity of norms on social media. Like, what exactly mm-hmm. does a retweet? constitute, right? Does a yeah. retweet constitute an endorsement? A lot of times people specify mm-hmm. retweets are not endorsements. Mm-hmm. Even if they What does it mean to like? What does like even right? what mean? does it mean to like? So yeah. the way that these a lot of these platforms are structured leads to so much of this ambiguity in terms of the speech acts that people may or may not be making on these platforms. And I feel like that also can play a role in uh, making a lot of these epistemological problems with social media that much worse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh, I think that's right. It's a, um, it's, it's, it changes the distribution of our attention. Um, it breaks up our attention. It constrains the types of discussions we can have with one another. I mean, if it's a bot, you can't really have much of a discussion at all, or you can, but it's going to be very repetitive. Um, Um, and, uh, and yet the same platform is, can be used to have an actual discussion. I mean, I rather enjoy, I only joined Twitter a couple of months ago, but, um, you know, it's certainly a good exercise and cons- having to be concise. Um, you know, it helps to have emojis and so on, but, uh, but you know, you, I, you can sort of have conversations on, on Twitter, you know, up to a point, I mean, the, it has its, it has its limitations of how much you can say, but some, you know, as with you know, most good writing, um, you know, most good writing. Can usually is good because it's as short as it can be, Uh, it's as concise as it could be. So there's there's that small pressure on it. But it's confusing. I agree to have you know one on the same platform where you're communicating with people who you quite you know you know well are actual human beings, and then you're it's open to these inputs you know of a different a different kind. And because it's so new, yeah, we don't know what the we don't really know what speech acts we're performing, and you know if I'm intending to like what if somebody says something and I think ah. You know, I don't know about that, but, you know, but then they said something. So like, I'm going to like it because, because liking is among other things, it's a move in an economy of recognition. Um, But then it's also, or it might, could also seem to be something like an endorsement. And of course, it's such a coarse grained thing, this little heart button. Um, It's too coarse grained to draw any of those distinctions. So a nuance that we have in words and gestures is not allowed um, on this platform. So that's certainly going to change the communicative situation.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thought I had is, you know, we need because of that lack of nuance, we need to just break out of this 280 character nightmare and maybe just rely more on audio and video. But I read (laughs) I read another depressing article by the philosopher Regina Rini the other day about the epistemology of deepfakes and how as deepfake technology progresses that, you know, it, it might be that we start to regard videos as Uh, less and less trustworthy as well because they can be convincingly edited, right? Just as photos can be. So maybe we're arriving at a future where we can't even trust those to the extent that we can now, right? Now we can at least look at a video and said, okay, well, this person clearly said it, right? But Mm. moving into that kind of future, then maybe that option is off the table It's interesting.
1: It's interesting how this structure of undermining has the same structure that we've all studied as philosophers in our skepticism classes. And I mean, um, you know, it's not that easy to... uh, I mean the skeptic thinks it's the, the external world skeptic about justification thinks that it's quite easy to get us into the situation where if you want to know whether there's mustard in the fridge and you open the fridge and you see some mustard, just don't conclude that there's mustard. Or it would be like epistemically wrong, you know, epistemically unjustified to do that. It just seems kind of bananas because, like, of course, that don't, you know, don't get me started. Like, of course, I, you know, what do that's why I find out whether there's mustard in the fridge is I look I open my fridge. Um, but then you have all these other cases where, you know, I've thought a lot about cognitive penetrability, where you know, you're what you the kind of projection where what you fear or suspect to be the case influences how things actually look to you so that's a kind of you know deep fake from within um you know my one of my examples is silly but you know straightforward if your jack thinks that jill is mad at him and then that fear that she's mad at him makes her look mad when he looks at her you know what is he supposed to believe like should he believe that she is mad because that's how she looks or should he not believe that's that she's mad because she only looks that way because of his fear. Now, of course, he's not in a position to know that his. We can suppose that his fear is creating his experience. Um, but if that's your, if that's just what you're given, what should you make of the appearances? Um, this is a very hard question. Now, I don't think that. Just because there's cognitive penetrability, which I think there is, um, you know, we should all walk around as skeptics about what to believe. So just cause there's deep fakes, I don't think that means that, I don't know if you're really there, Cody, you know, just because there's bots, I don't think that means, well, wait, I was just chatting with my friend Rakesh on Twitter. Um, you know, maybe it isn't him. You know, there's, there's all of the pragmatic and contextual moves that, you know, were available to respond to the skeptic have to kick in here as well. Um, and uh, I mean, it's certainly a big problem if, you know, you circulate, uh, you know, there are people who aren't in the same contextual situation that we are. And if, so if they see the deep fake video of Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to discount it in the way that somebody else would if they're armed with a theory of where it came from. Um, so that's a problem. But I wouldn't say, not that I think uh, uh, Regina Rennie is saying this, but, you know, I wouldn't say that somehow we're all in the skeptic's nightmare. Um, we're certainly in a nightmare, that's for sure, but it's not the skeptic's nightmare where suddenly like there's no trustworthiness at all. It's that, um, you know, sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't just like, sometimes you can get a skeptical argument off the ground, but just because of the existence of this alternative, that doesn't automatically mean that all bets are off. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, just as ridiculous as like not being able to, to know that there's mustard in the fridge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that she's necessarily making that conclusion yeah. either. Her, her article is very nuanced and perhaps I'll link to it in the podcast episode, but yeah, that'd be great for that. Um, so yeah, maybe we could shift towards the authoritarianism and science stuff now. So this is another article that you wrote in the Tampa Bay times, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. So I guess a first pl- preliminary question here is how would you define authoritarian politics in a nutshell?
1: Yeah, it's the politics where, um, the, uh, Leader, An authoritarian leader, um, the leader, the authority, political authority resides in the leader. It doesn't reside in any principles that are supposed to constrain uh, the laws that the leader tries to make or signs off on. Um, so that's why, uh, 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 um, like in Hobbes' Absolute Sovereign, um, you know, what they say just goes. There's no committee, there's no decisions about it, there's no uh, appealing the, the law or the order The executive order. There's no appealing it on the basis of the constitution because there's no constitution. So authoritarian leadership um, is sort of fundamentally contrasted with like a constitutional democracy where everybody's answerable to principles, and therefore uh, questions, interpretations can arise, hypocrisy can arise, charges of hypocrisy can arise, where you know you're supposed to be constrained by the principles, and then it may come to be a disconnect between um, actual political. Uh, events and behaviors and policies and those principles, because you have principles you're aspiring to. There is no possibility of hypocrisy um, of that kind, the principled kind in authoritarian leadership. Um, So the authoritarian leader makes the law, you know, just from what he says, whatever he wants. Um, And that was indeed the defense of Trump in the impeachment hearings that the Republicans gave him. Um, You know, he's not subject to the constitution. He's not subject to the law. He's above the law. That's authoritarian leadership. So that the flip side of that point is that political subjects just are loyal or not loyal. There's not political subjects who are participating in, um, creating, you know, instantiating the principles, um, let alone having a say in them.
0: Right. So there is no power above power itself. And yeah, it's almost a cult of personality.
1: Yeah, it's more like politics of will instead of politics of reason. To be politics of reason, if you are if you are answerable to principles. Now, of course, there's all sorts of things that don't have to do with reason or reasoning, like behavioral sciences to try to figure out how can you get people to comply with the laws? Like, how can you get them to wear a mask? What, what do you have to tell if you're going to ask them to give up a lot of things like stay in your house for three months? How are you going to get people to do that? Um, well, you got to get them, you get, to, you get them to do that only if you at a minimum explain why they have to do that um, or explain why it's a good reason to do that. Or um, and you know you rely on experts to say look this is really the best way we can handle this invisible threat that nobody can see but yet is could be lurking in anybody's breath of all places. Um, so you you need a you need some sort of reliance on uh, messaging and some account some structure of accountability. So when you have a constant when you have principles that are constraining political authority, um, then you have uh, structures of accountability because there's something to be accountable to. But in authoritarian leadership, there is nothing to be accountable to. There's only the person, you know, you do what they say, you're accountable to them. And similarly, anyone who works for them, you know, the bureaucrat isn't just fulfilling, you know, abstract orders that are policies that are written by nobody. Um, You know, the the bureaucrats are carrying out those specific orders. If they cease to be loyal, they get fired. And of course, that's what we see.
0: Yeah. So one thing that you talk about that struck me as very interesting is what you call the paradox of Trump. And this kind of helped me make sense of a lot of a lot of different perceptions that people have about Trump. So some people on the left will constantly talk about how Trump is this kind of stupid, incompetent, con man, buffoon, and others will, I think correctly draw attention to the fact that Trump is this kind of political, want to be political, strongman demagogue, demagogue who's capable of derailing the United States into an authoritarian regime. And on the face of it, it would seem as if these two kind of portraits of Trump are incompatible or at least in tension with one another, right? Like is he, it what is he? Is he an authoritarian strongman or is he this incompetent buffoon? Like you have to pick one, right? But one thing that you bring up in your article is that maybe there isn't really a tension between one uh, these two. And you call this the paradox of Trump, if I'm not mistaken. You talk about how Trump's dysfunctional government and incompetence actually doesn't undermine his authoritarian politics but right. can instead stoke it. Can you explain That's what right. you mean by that?
1: Yeah, what I mean is that if you, as he did from day one, um, purge experts from the government, and he purged them by not filling um, roles. So, for example, Michael Lewis has this great book called The Fifth Risk, which is incredibly prescient, um, that's about the transition to the Trump administration in 2016. And the, the U.S. federal government has... A layer of bureaucrats who are career civil servants who don't change with the administration. Then there's also quite a big layer of um, bureaucrats in in all of the many governmental agencies from the USDA to the um, NOAA, the The one that takes care of the weather, the one about everything having to do with you know nature and agriculture, USDA, um, the FDA, all of these all of these agencies have a great number of people who are federal appointees, and therefore, if the if the administration changes, um, those those. Um, positions are typically filled, and there's a lot of congressional, there has to be congressional approval of them. Um, So from day one, Trump didn't fill, left many, many of those things unfilled, or as Michael Lewis puts it, he left the government to die on the vine. Um, So this is a way of, you know, not firing experts, but never having them there in the first place. So these are people with extremely um, specific knowledge, um, much of which is geared toward uh, anticipating and preventing disasters. Um, and so that's a way of, so it looks dysfunctional because you're kind of not, you know, it looks dysfunctional because, oh my God, there's none of these, um, you know, federal employees when there used to be. Uh, but it's actually authoritarian because now there are no, there, you know, there People who otherwise would have been hired, who have expertise in these areas of public administration, they're not even there. And then the people who are selected to lead these agencies, like Sunny Purdue from the USDA, you know, are most often people profiting off of them. Um, so, for example, um, the the USDA regulates, among many many other things how many chickens per hour a chicken plant, a poultry plant, is allowed to kill. The more chickens you can kill per hour, the more profit you can make as a poultry plant. Um, There's a certain point at which if you, you know, um, if you kill more chickens per hour than that, than this threshold, uh, you know, you run the risk of infection and, you know, salmonella and so on. Um, So it's actually safe. If you have, if you have public safety in mind, then you'll limit the number of chickens killable per hour. If you have only profit in mind, you'll let there be more chickens killed per hour. So if you have, um, a figure like Sunny Purdue, in charge of the USDA, um, you can expect, and this is what happened, uh, that you can now raise the number of chickens that can be kill- killed per hour. So things like this um, you know, it could have someone doesn't even know. You know, maybe they don't even know how many chickens you can safely kill per hour because they're not thinking about that. They just want to know how many chickens can this human being in these in these plants kill per hour? You know, before they kill over, or you know, what's humanly possible to do? Let's just do that many because that's like. going to make us more profit. It's going to be more efficient from the point of view of producing profit, not more efficient from the point of view of having a safe population, not more efficient from the point of view of having a humane, um, you know, working conditions for the, for the people in the meat plants, um, but more efficient from the point of view of profit making. So um, that's a way of being dysfunctional, um, but also being authoritarian.
0: Didn't you get rid of the, some pandemic team that would set up in the government?
1: Yeah, there was an office of pandemic readiness that was gotten rid of or supposedly merged with some other office. This is all just a way of down, you know, perfectly typical um, for the Trump administration, you know, downsizing um, and shrinking the numbers in the federal, shrinking the numbers of federal employees. Um, You know, under the Obama administration, there was somebody who tried to convert a lot of these positions that had to go through congressional approval. I mean, you think of it's a lot of work and time that goes into approving these people who acquire a lot of institutional knowledge. It might make more sense for there to be not quite so big a layer of federal employees that are, um, you know, that need congressional approval. Um, On the other hand, you know, it's an important method of oversight to have some kind of uh, you know, to, if you if you just have everybody who's a career civil servant, you know, not changing with the administration, um, you know, you, you would at least want to have some other mechanisms of oversight that would that would uh, uh, you know keep everybody accountable.
0: Yeah, yeah. So after you talk about this paradox of Trump, you you argue that reliance on scientific expertise it poses a threat to authoritarian governments, and that's partly why. Trump has worked so hard to undermine scientific expertise. Can you just explain how exactly science poses a threat to authoritarianism?
1: Sure. People with scientific expertise, they're guided by knowledge of the way, or our best knowledge or best scientific knowledge um, of, you know, whether it's about atmospheric science, like where the hurricane is going to hit, or whether it's about, um, you know, pandemic readiness um or whether it's about intelligence for foreign affairs. Um, you need experts who study um, you know, electoral interference, experts who study um, pandemic threats, uh, experts who study how to how, how it might be possible for someone to undo the entire, you know electrical grid of the northwest and so on. Um, you need people who, uh, know about those things in order to, in order for national security, in order for public health, um, in order to protect people from the weather and so on. Um, so, but if you're going to govern that way, that means you're governing in a way that's answerable to facts about the world. Um, it means that you're governing in a way that's got some principles, not just, you know, the facts tell you what to do about them. Facts never tell you what to do about them. Um, you know, like you could predict a hurricane and, and, you know, if it happens to, be a hurricane that's going to knock out your political opponents, you might say, great. Um, But if you have uh, experts who, um, in becoming federal employees, have sworn to uphold the principles that are supposed to constrain every uh, policy in the country, um, then that's part of a massive structure of accountability. Um, that's at odds with the authoritarian government because it's accountability to facts, it's accountability to principles. Um, now, what really struck me at the beginning of the pandemic and still strikes me now is that you had people. You know, if you ask, well, um, how malleable is the population in its in its trust? To get back to our epistemic themes um, in science, um, actually, people are people are very trustworthy of science. It's amazing. And the pandemic that you had somebody telling you that there is this grave threat coming at you and you see no immediate evidence of it. I mean, at the beginning, you know, it was just some abstraction. It was just, okay. it happened in some other place and maybe a few people got sick in Boston. um, But, you know, it really wasn't real and vivid to people. Um, most people didn't know anybody who had contracted this illness um, and they told you about how it would transmit. It was almost bizarre. Um, you know, I mean, okay, we understand that colds, you know, don't sneeze on somebody, um, but that there could be asymptomatic carriers. You had to totally rethink your body, your relation of your body to other people's bodies. You had to totally rethink the meaning of what it would be if you are now crossing someone's path, you know, and sort of what I'd like to think of as the normal way as opposed to like crossing the street, which used to be a way in fact of, indicating that you don't trust the people you think they might do something terrible and something that might even offend them. You know, it was all of these massive rearrangements of how we think about things that everybody, you know, just jumped right into. I mean, it was very uncomfortable and it was very strange, but, um, most people at the beginning, um, you know, if they, if they heard that, uh, the medical experts tell us that this could happen, that the epidemiologists tell us that this could happen, they adjust their behavior right away. So that was amazing to me. You know, that, you know, or anyway, that showed that, uh, there's quite high trust in, in, in medical and epidemiological expertise. And, um, you know, it comes very natural to everybody. Nobody thinks when they hear about epidemiology that the thing to do is to, you know, let the virus only hit some people. There's just no way for, there's no way to do that. There's no way to weaponize it like that, you know, um, at least on the face of it. And so, you know, the most obvious way of thinking about this pandemic is, okay, we have a major public health situation. Um, what are we going to do about it for the common good? So all of a sudden we had a very salient common purpose um, you know, close to everybody's minds, close to the top of everybody's minds. Um, that's in a major threat to an authoritarian leader, um, because, uh, it calls for coordination between people. It, you know, you, people very badly want to have their input heard into the modes of government, um they're very invested in finding the same information that usually the government is only invested in finding out about like, you know, normally I'm just not concerning myself at all with like covert electoral interference of one country by another. Um, I mean, I should care about that if it's going to affect me, but you know, that's why we have intelligence officers is they can like concern themselves with that. And I'll concern myself with what I concern myself with. And that's how, you know, we have a kind of experts, you know, helping with the government and other people go about their business. That's a sort of, you know, default that we have become used to. But when you have a public health emergency like this, it's like all of a sudden my interests and the things that I'm thinking about and the things that experts in government are thinking about are the same things. Um, so we have a kind of political consciousness that's, um, you know, quite different from our, you know, usual oblivion, if that's what we usually have.
0: Do you think that that, uh, that kind of collective faith and scientific expertise has held true throughout the course of the pandemic. Like, you know, people have talked about how there's this crisis of institutional faith in this country Mm -hmm. and how that's undermining democracy. It's definitely true, I think, in journalism and government and, and, among some people, probably more conservatives, definitely, when it comes to science, you know, the mm-hmm. anti-climate change, mm-hmm. anti-vaxxer. And I've definitely, there's definitely been some notable conspiracy theories that have popped up related to the coronavirus. Oh, you know, even so far to say that the coronavirus is a hoax or that Bill Gates is trying to manipulate people by developing a vaccine. Yeah. Do you think that, so do you think that whatever that problem is of that crisis of institutional faith, has that gotten worse or has the pandemic showed us that there are some areas that are still safe from that, like science namely?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's, uh, you know, at a certain point, reality will, you know, push back. Um, so, you know, as more people hear about, um, you know, the, the, the case rates going up, it's a little bit hard to ch- keep in total denial about it. Um, and the same will be true of anti-vaxxers once there come to be, you know, measles outbreaks. And of course, already there are some like the one in the um, Orthodox neighborhood in New York. Um, so, uh, um, you know, there's also, I think, been, um, um, I, you know, the same sorts of means of, the same sorts of means of propaganda that we talked about earlier in, for Schadenfreude and political context can be, and has been used to try to, you know, um, make the, the, Leaders, I won't say Democrats, because it's really just the difference between functional and non-functional governments. Um, but, you know, to make the leaders who are trying to control the public health crisis uh, look like oppressors or, you know, you see these signs, you see the same sort of repetition of um, slogans that can make the mirroring effect we discussed earlier, like my body, my choice, you know, my body, I can wear a mask if I want to sort right. of. Um, um, you, you see that same sort of thing and the fact that the, the fact that you find those sort of same slogans to me i haven't done the research to find out whether uh you know to look into and i don't know how much is actually known about uh the role of propagandistic sites in you know getting these anti mask you know rallies going and of course you can understand people feeling like they've had enough of lockdown already um but um so i think it, it could be so i don't i don't i can't speak to uh the extent to which it's the result of, of propaganda. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's some of that. Um, there's also, though, the, the, the lack of clear messaging. I mean, you know, you have a Patrick of pandemics, but you really need federal leadership. Everything could have been so different um, and so much better, and we would have had it under control by now if there had been, you know, federal leadership on yeah. this issue. Um, but instead it's like, it's, you know, it's like in, in, New Hampshire, you can buy fireworks and, you know, I think tax-free alcohol, if I'm not mistaken, but in Massachusetts where I live, you can't, people drive over the border, you know, don't want to wear a mask, just drive over the border. It becomes something like that. It becomes one of these laws, you know, but it's just, if you go the next town over, then you're not subject to the law anymore. So, um, it can seem sort of contingent, like it doesn't really matter. Um, Like, it just seems kind of arbitrary because after all, there's no immediate effect if you, you know, take off your mask or have your mask on, it just seems like some sort of arbitrary thing that's being handed down from above if you don't have the whole picture in mind. But if you had federal leadership, what we would have is the messaging they were talking about before. So if you're going to make people do something, you can't expect people to just kind of give up all these things if they don't have any idea of why they're doing it. You know, I think that's the kind of first lesson of any kind of behavioral science. If you want people to do something, you know, you explain in terms they can understand uh, why it is important to do this and you make it easy for them to do it you do it with um you know you, you make architecture help you know so you have um you have like marks on the sidewalks so people know where to stand um you know you have uh you have uh people giving out masks in my city in cambridge um they had an interesting thing um they have uh something called the cambridge core uh co RPS, of people who are helping people see and understand how to be safe with one another outside. So they're giving out masks. They're explaining why you need to use them. You know, they're helping people distance. So this is an example of something that could be done by police. After all, it's enforcing the law because there's a mask mandate and there's a social distance mandate, um, but it's not being done by police. It's being done by the Cambridge Corps. <laughs> so your relationship to the state is now feels a lot different if someone's coming up to you and explaining, you know, the way a teacher would to a kid in a school. Um, he Here's why, you know, I, my sister works in the early education and I've seen, and I know the kind of talent it takes um, to do, to explain to somebody, to get someone who might have a hard time understanding things, um, you know, here's how you sit down and, you know, just doing it step-by-step step in a way that a, a good teacher can. Well, that's behavioral science at work. Um, now we could have that on a massive scale. We could have that, we could use the internet for that if we had a very different use for these platforms than we have now, if it wasn't just you know the use of big comp- big data companies taking our data for profit if it was used as it is in Taiwan um, to you know, send messages to the public that people can actually use. For example, in Taiwan, they had a setup where anyone could look up and see which pharmacies had run out of masks, so they didn't go to a pharmacy that ran out. So they, you know, they didn't waste time standing in line at a pharmacy that didn't have masks. Okay, that would be a way of using technology that many people have access to for messaging that we very badly needed, and it would just take the edge off. It would it would take away these scenarios that we've all seen and maybe even been and I've been in them myself, where suddenly you're yelling at somebody, you know you're yelling at your federal citizen because you're just so angry that they're not you know acting the way they're they're angry you're either angry because you think that they're telling you to do something or you're angry because they're like using the outdoor gym and you can't believe the you know the inconsiderateness and so on i mean suddenly like we are bearing the weight of the social contract in our interpersonal interactions which my shoulders aren't strong enough to bear that weight and neither is anybody else's um you need laws you need messages you need a kind of constitution of a public, um, so that you have uh, people understand this is why this is why we all have this is why we have to do what we're being asked to do, and um, when you have messages like that, it, it's a lot easier to get along with people.
0: I really like that phrase, bearing the weight of the social contract in our interpersonal interactions. It definitely yeah. definitely feels like that. Or I mean, yeah. even something just as simple as Trump wearing a mask. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. He didn't wear a mask until whatever a month ago, I never, I never understood what the political calculus was. Like it, it just seemed like, you know, even if that was the idea was it was politically prudent for him not to do that. It mm-hmm. seems polit- so politically unwise, right? Aren't mm-hmm. his election chances augmented if he gets the pandemic under control? I just never understood what the conservative play was there. Even.
1: I think the play is to make it, I think the play is division. Um, you know, you have to remember that it's, this is, um, this is someone who's, he's, he's not, He's an authoritarian leader, but he is also um, you know, beholden to other authoritarian leaders. Um, you know, There's good reason to think he's beholden to Russia. In fact, I think we now know that um, to Putin. And the way we know that is that um, we know that he knew about the electoral interference that helped him win the election. And in all other cases, um, when there has been foreign interference in an election, um, just the fact that the leader knows that somebody else helped you, makes you puts you in their debt. A great book about this is David Scheimer's book called Rigged, uh, which is a history of covert electoral interference you know, by the U.S., by Russia, and many places. It's got a great chapter on Chile, um, and it's got a series of really good chapters on the 2016, what happened in 2016. Um, so uh, now Russia, it's, it's in the interest of Russia for the U.S. to be an unstable place. Um, That's—and And that is, in fact, their goal. Um, it's also in the interest of Trump for there to be social division because it plays into the dynamic we described earlier that you just have to choose sides. So polarization is good for that part of the right. Um, So I think the reason that there's no mask and there's no plan um, is again, not incompetence, but it's of a piece with the paradox of Trump. Um, it's, It's because it sows division. Uh, so these anti-mask rallies, you know, sort of ripping apart the social fabric. Nothing's better for anti-democracy than ripping across ripping a, 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 a part of social fabric. Conversely, the flip side of that point is nothing is better for democracy than highlighting common purposes and having means to discuss how best to achieve them. Um, and science is a key part of that when there's just stuff we plain need to know. I mean, after all, we're not just going to sit down and figure out how to run a city. I don't know how to run a city. Do you know how to run a city? Of course we don't know how to run a city. I'm just going to be a grad student. (laughs) Right. I'm just a philosopher. Um, but you know, I'm just a philosopher, but you're just a graduate student, but we can both get sick. You know, we can both like need to get from point A to point B. You know, we're both going to pass people on the street. We both maybe use a bicycle or a vehicle, or we're pedestrians or something. So we have all sorts of common purposes and interests with all sorts of people who, you know, don't study philosophy. Um, and we we need to be in communication with the people who do know, uh, well, what would happen if we made this street one way? <laughs> you know, what would happen if we didn't wear masks? What would happen if what's our trade-off between opening the casino, which for some reason is open in Everett outside of Boston, you know, if we open the casino now, can we open the schools later? You know, there are people who know the consequences of those facts. And, you know, th- those facts affect all of us. So we need means of talking about them, you know, together. And there's going to be perspectives you have that I don't have. There's going to be perspectives a motorcyclist has that I don't have. I'm a bicyclist. They're a motorcyclist. Somebody else drives a car. Somebody else walks on a sidewalk. Maybe some people do all of those things, but probably not. In which case, we need to know uh, if we're going to do any kind of city planning. What is it like from your point of view? Well, what is the effect on you? I have all these, like, do we, do we emphasize the... Um, the unknowable consequences of our of interaction the indirect consequences he called them of human interactions um, the point of having public discourse and the point of having experts is that they make they bring to our light they bring into our consciousness uh, what the uh indirect consequences of our actions are so that we can reason together about how we should
0: manage them is it the case that some maybe this is a uh ill-formed question, but isn't it case that some authoritarians will actually use science to serve their authoritarian ends? I was yes. thinking in particular about Herbert Spencer and social Darwinism, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that the Darwinian laws of natural science and survival of the fittest can apply to, you know, individuals and races and societies and how that can, you know, how that in the 20th century fed Nazism and racism. Sure. And I understand that that's a debunked science now, but yeah, can the science play that role for authoritarians as well?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a, uh, a an important distinction. Hannah Arendt makes a distinction um, between uh, communist and fascist authoritarianism. She's talking about totalitarianism, um, but uh, we can ignore the difference where totalitarianism is the state is involved in every aspect of life. Um, but the, the two, but let's just talk about authoritarianism, the two different modes. You could have one mode that's rational. So the communists loved planning. You know, um, they loved city planning. They lived in East Berlin. Now you can see uh, these enormous kind of apartment buildings that are that they they made for people to live in. It's just all these all the marks of city planning. Um, It was rational. It was that you know you have a plan, you execute it. Um, You know, fascist fascist authoritarianism is different. Um, You know, it thrives on division. It thrives on chaos. Um, its means of getting loyalty are different. It doesn't get loyalty from you know the kinds of coercion that you saw in the Soviet Union. Um, it, it gets it gets loyalty through sowing confusion. Um, and making you feel like only you know you're you're threatened by some you know some enemy or other who's going to out to humiliate you who's going to celebrate your pain and so you have to celebrate their pain and so on. So those are just two different modes of authoritarianism. One associates science much more with the rational kind, you know, the communist kind, um, the so, you know the, the Soviet communist kind, it's communism with a big C. Um, now, but I think also there's different things we can associate with science. So um, you can associate with science authority and the final word. That's of course a very unrealistic picture of science, as anybody who's ever done anything remotely experimental knows. It comes in dribs and drabs. It's distributed across all sorts of people, so there isn't like one scientist who knows everything about the pandemic. There are the aerosol transmission people. There are the healthy building people. Uh, there are the medical clinical people, you know, and so on. There's just a whole mass of knowledge, and it's not embodied in anybody. Um, and in fact, the sciences, the natural sciences, and particularly the medical sciences, are very good at sharing information. Um, uh, lots of channels of information flow in public policy. It's much less so. Um, you could have, you know, however many counties are in the U S many, many counties each has their own health department, because the health department, understandably enough, is run at the level of the county. Um, They don't communicate with one another in the way that scientific labs, you know, one in Japan and, you know, one in Korea and one in the U.S. might communicate with one another. Um, So uh, when you think of the role of science and government, you know, that the model shouldn't be, you know, here's the theory of what's right, and it's just going to go from the top down. The model should be here is a body of inquiry, and uh, it's uh, it's unfolding, and it's unfolding slowly. It's not, uh, not unfolding in a linear way. Um, And one nice thing about the pandemic is that that's been made evident to people um, you can if you want to uh, you could follow on Twitter you can look up on you know YouTube you can tune into webinars we have all sorts of experts even the New York Times the fantastic interview with Lindsay Mar one of the aerosol transmission experts um, now we have access to people who are trying to figure out this problem in real time um, and share and their research is available to us and their research is about problems that matter to us that isn't always true um, with you know there's a lot of there's a lot of for example medical research on diseases that only a few people are going to have, of course, are important, but there's been very little, you know, research on viruses, (laughs) um, you know, for economic reasons, mainly. Um, So if we think of, you know, the the type of science that goes with authoritarianism is the model of science where where you just sort of, science is in a way incidental. It's just a kind of another uh, it's just another source of final authority. Um, but that's not, that's a kind of distortion of science. The kind of science that's threatening to authoritarianism, um, when it can feed into public policy is the kind that's alive in inquiry and, you know, shows everybody, which would be nice for them to know anyway, that it's not like magic. You know, think of the, the kids' science shows that are like magic shows of like, look what I did. I turned this paper from blue to red, you know, now you can be the, you too can be somebody in control of this mystique. That's a terrible model. You know, the, the the science show for kids should be like, wow, what do you think this, here's a problem. How do you think it gets from point A to point B? Here's an embryo, how do you think it grows into a human? Like, or here's a little seed, how do you think humans are made? I mean, you should hear the things kids come up with. I mean, they kind of generate many of the hypotheses that one finds in the history of science from preformationism to, you know, all sorts of other agricultural models.
0: Yeah perhaps we could end with this. This is kind of just a general question about the election. So, you know, people, it seems like people always say that this next election is the most important election of their lifetime. Do you think that's actually true with respect to the 2020 election this November? And if so, why? And do you think that in general, American democracy is under a serious threat of potential collapse? I would guess that your answer to that question is yes, based on everything that we've talked about in this discussion, but what's your kind of perspective right now going into the 2020 election?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, it is under, under threat, um, you know, both domestically and from, you know, from inside and from outside, uh, from the outside, you know, now there's been no, you know, the Trump administration refused to, um, sanction Putin at all for what we now know, uh, was interference in the election. Um, and so that's just going to embolden him, um, even Obama didn't sanction him, um, you know, when he could have. Uh, so that's that. Um, um, and then from within, obviously, we've seen the shenanigans uh, with the post office. Um, we've seen most, you know, even more threateningly, I think the, the rhetoric where, you know, if Trump says outright, the only way I'll lose is if the election is rigged, um, you know, well, then if he loses, then that's a way of discrediting the election and trying to say that the, you know, it sets up a narrative, you um, which could be used to say, well, the, you know, there's been some corruption, so these results don't count. So I have to stay being president until we can figure something else out. And then, you know, who knows how long that goes on. Um, And of course, there's also the dynamic where, uh, you know, there will be corruption because they will have made it corrupt. Um, You know, or if they allow, uh, you know, foreign electoral interference, then it will be true. Uh, You know, there will be the corrupt election. Um, now, whether that means that you know what what to do about that, well, what I think some people have said should be done about that is you have to set up now, um, you know, get commitments now from you know multi-state or you know some sort of um, some sort of election commissions um, to say in advance how we're going to uh, verify. These are those votes. Um, You know, if somebody wants to mess with the vote, there's all sorts of ways, there's all sorts of modes of voter suppression. Um, There can be, you know, again, you can have the, the propagandistic route where you have robot calls saying, um, you know, falsely that you're not allowed to vote or that your voting place has been changed or something like that. Um, you can have, you can change the voter addresses so that, you know, if you if I go and say, you know, this is my address and they say, actually, we have down here a different address. Um, and so now the verification can't go through. So I can't vote. You can obviously close voting polls as has happened, um, in Georgia. Um, you can make people feel there's no point in voting, um, because after all, they're all the same, you know, Biden's corrupt, Trump is corrupt. It's all corrupt. Um, there is, you know, any number of ways, all of which are being tried, um, to prevent people from voting or to make it or to make it the case that even if they do vote that, the results won't
0: hold. Well, uh, I think I've stolen enough of your time, Professor. Okay. I really appreciate you doing this. i found it to be a very educational conversation for me.
1: Thanks so much for the series and the chance to talk. Um, I really enjoyed it.